0: Uh, today, uh, we are beginning a new series on 1 John. We'll start this letter today, and we'll be looking at this letter for the remainder of the summer. Now, just some preliminary remarks about 1 John. 1 okay, John is a short letter. The content is straightforward, the language, and the vocab is simple. It's so simple that even a second grader can read this letter all the way through. I know this because I tested this on my son yesterday. Uh, The perks of being a pastor's kid, right? I had him sit down, read the letter through, and I asked him, are there words that you don't know? And he was only able to um, not make out just a few words. He was able to read it all the way through. Now, 1 John is simple. However, that in no way means that the subject matter of this letter is light. The rhetoric of this letter is quite challenging, and it requires thoughtful rereading. And so my encouragement before we begin is, as we are going through this series for the summer, I want to encourage you to read this letter on your own at home, do devotionals from it, and try to understand what John is communicating. Now, for our first week, I want to examine the purpose of the letter. Why does John pen this letter in the first place? Well, he tells us, 1 John 5:13. this is what he says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, at first glance, uh, this statement seems to be illogical, because if you read, he says this, I write to you who believe, so that you may know you have eternal life. I mean, the question is, if you believe in Jesus, shouldn't you know that you have eternal life? Well, John's intention here is not to tell them about their salvation for the very first time, but... He intends to write this letter to remind them of the salvation that they have. He writes this letter to those who believe so that he can solidify their faith in Jesus. He writes this letter so that they may have certainty. He writes this letter to give them assurance for what they already know. It's a lot like these saying, uh, I love you. Uh, very rarely do we say, I love you, to people for the very first time. 99% of the time when we say, I love you, we say it to people whom we have said it to before. Our spouse, our parents, our children, our friends. We say, I love you, over and over again to the same people. Why? Because we want to remind them. We want to make them secure. We want to give them assurance of our love. A few months ago, I was uh, in my study uh, one evening, and my wife comes down and she says to me, one of your sons is crying. And I thought, one of my sons, (laughs) why is he one of my sons when he's crying? Uh, And she says, he's crying and he's looking for you. So I go upstairs and I see one of my sons crying. He's in bed, but he's crying. And I ask, what's wrong? And apparently, I did not say, I love you, to him before I put him down. Now, we have this ritual at home, this routine, right? Before they go to bed, they brush their teeth, they floss, they do everything, and uh, as they're lying down, I pray over them, I pray for them, and then I kiss them, I hug them, and I say, I love you, I love you. However, that night, uh, I think I was in a bit of a rush, you know, I wanted to get back down to, to my study and do work. All right, the truth is there was a basketball game on, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I did the routine. I thought I did it, but I missed one kid. And when I came down, he was crying. So I had to go back up, and I found one of my kids crying. And I asked him, why are you crying? And he said, because you did not say you loved me. And it's strange, because I tell him every day, I love you. I love you. I love you. But that night, that one night that I missed it, it hurt him. And so I had to reassure him. I had to go back up. I had to hug him and kiss him and say, Daddy loves you. Daddy loves you. Daddy loves you more than a basketball game. (laughs) I'm sorry. You know, this is why John is writing this letter. You see, most of the content in this letter. Christians already know. If you are a believer, you already know most of the things that he is writing. John doesn't say anything really insightful. He doesn't say anything that's cutting edge. His theology isn't hyper-nuanced, but he tells us the things that we already know over and over and over again. In fact, the word know he uses about 25 times. He says, you know, that you are from the Father. You know you are children of God. You know this. You know this. You know this. And he repeats it over and over again. He's telling us the things that we know because through repetition, he wants us to be assured. He wants us to have security. And as Christians, this is, I just want to encourage you that as we go through this letter, I want to encourage you don't seek out new information. Don't seek out new information, but seek out affirmation through old information. You know, quite often we, um, you know, in our studies, we, we always try to find new things, new insights. But as we're going through John, I want to encourage you to, yeah, don't keep your ears open looking for something new. But keep your ears open, listening for affirmation. How the things that we already know and believed in, as they are repeated over and over again, the Lord, by His Spirit, He is giving us assurance. So this is what John writes. I, have ri- I, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. John wants to give us assurance, And so the question for us this morning is this. Where does our insurance come from? Where does our assurance come from? And that's what I believe John is getting at at the two passages we've read. And let me give you two answers for this. The first is this, eyewitness testimony. Our assurance comes from eyewitness testimony. This is what John says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you. John is saying this. He is basing everything that he's about to write on the fact that he has seen Jesus. He's basing everything that he's about to say on his eyewitness account Of Jesus. Let me give you a little background information into this letter, okay? When John is writing, he is the last of the apostles. All the apostles have died. He is the last surviving apostle. Perhaps he is also the last surviving eyewitness of Jesus. Everyone who had witnessed Jesus had passed on, they had died. John was one of the last remaining survivors who had actual physical interaction with Jesus. Now, when John is writing, about 60 years has passed from Jesus' resurrection to John actually writing this letter, and a lot of things have changed in that 60-year time. The gospel of Jesus went out from Jerusalem, it went through modern-day Turkey, and churches were planted all throughout. The gospel went to the Greek world. However, with that came a lot of issues. Namely, false teaching. False teaching was a really, really big issue during the first century. So, you have to know that Christianity during this time was new. There were no books, no blogs, no podcasts, and most importantly, there were very few trained leaders. And as a result, what would would happen was the apostles would go, namely Paul would go, he would plant the church, right, he would spread the gospel, he would uh, convert people, he would plant the church, and then when he moves on to the next region, all of these influencers or the community leaders or the teachers, the intellectuals of that town, they would come after the apostle has left, and they would swoop down on these communities, and they would start to lead the church but they would start to lead them astray. They would start to syncretize Christianity with other Greek philosophies and other worldviews of that time. They would say this, you learned about Jesus, right? How he was God and how he was man. But let me tell you the truth. Jesus wasn't man, he was God. And, And these people would come into these churches and they would confuse the people. They would say, you know what, Paul taught this. But this is how Christianity has evolved. This is the better version of Christianity. And they would bring all sorts of confusion into the church. Now, the churches at the time, even the church that John is writing to, they're asking the question, who should we believe? Should we believe the apostles, or should we believe these new teachers? They are saying some really insightful things. And John, he's saying this, You have to believe me, because I saw him, I witnessed him, I touched him, I heard him with my own ears. I know Jesus. I know we uh, have a tendency to think that uh, past generations, especially the pre-scientific generations, we have a tendency to think that they are naive, gullible, and unsophisticated. Let me tell you, these people—they were not stupid. Believe it or not, during Jesus' time, there were standards for history writing. For instance, um, take a look at what uh, this is, next slide, please. If you can, yeah, take a look at what uh, Lucian says. Lucian is a well-known historian and philosopher uh, in the Greek world. He's not a Christian, but this is what he writes with respect to history writing. He says this, as to the facts themselves, the historian should not assemble them at random, but only after much laborious and painstaking investigation. This is what he says. He should, for preference, be an eyewitness, but if not, listen to those who tell the more impartial story. You see, this is what Lucian says. The best historians are those who are eyewitnesses. Eyewitness accounts have the highest degree of veracity. And he says this, if the historian is not an eyewitness, then at least what he should do is he should seek out eyewitnesses. And not just any eyewitnesses, he should seek out those who are impartial, those who are neutral. Now, we're getting a little technical here, but if you follow along, you know, we tend to think that the gospel stories are religiously tainted, religiously slanted. And I know many people today think that the gospels are mythical because they, they contain all of these miracles. But if you put your modern biases aside, if you put them off to the side and you read the gospel with fresh eyes, you'll see that the gospel reads more like history, okay? For instance, if you look at John 11, 1, Uh, John 11. This is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus. Look at all the details that he includes. He says, there was a certain man who was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. So there's a name and there's a location, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. There's a connection there. And then he goes on, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. John also records a time. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, a certain period in the year. And so this story that we have, the story of the raising of Lazarus, which is one of the most hardest stories to believe because Jesus raised the dead, you have these details. You have time, place, location, people. You know, John wrote this about 50 years after the raising of Lazarus. And if the first readers wanted to, they could have gone to Bethany and they could have asked, Was there a man named named Lazarus? Did he have a sister, Mary and Martha? Was he raised? Did it happen during this time? See, there was a way to verify the things that we have in Scripture. And John, as he's writing his gospel and he's writing this letter, he's not just basing everything that he's writing just on his thoughts. He's saying, I have seen it. I have witnessed it. You know, when it comes to historical veracity, uh, much has not changed, even in today's age. Do you remember when you were young in high school or middle school and you had to write your first research paper? Do you remember writing your first research paper? I remember I wrote it on the slave trade. It was a terrible, terrible paper. But your first research paper that you wrote, remember what your history teacher said? If you want to write a research paper, this is what you have to do. The first things that he or she taught was you have to differentiate between primary sources and secondary sources. Secondary sources, while they are good, right, to write a real research paper, to do real research, you have to go to primary sources. Why? Because there's more weight, validity, and authority with primary sources. The same thing in a court hearing. You can have an expert witness analyze all the details of a case and give you his or her professional advice. Or you can have an eyewitness, someone with no professional background, but someone who actually saw it. And if the eyewitness is credible, that case is done. How can we have assurance? How can we be sure of our faith? We can be sure because John he was a first century eyewitness, and he's giving testimony. He's saying this, I have seen him. I have heard him. I have touched him. I have met him. And he's basing his content on what he has witnessed. And I say this quite often, but if Christianity was ever going to be debunked, if Christianity was ever going to be proven false, that would have happened in the first century. So how do we know? Because we have eyewitness account. But there's another reason for how we can have certainty, and it's this, as, as John writes, he, it's the work of the Spirit. 1 John chapter 5, uh, verses 6 to 9, says this, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Okay, now when he's talking about water and blood, he's he's probably referencing the fact that, yeah, Jesus came as flesh. In his baptism, he was real. In his death, as his blood was poured out, he was a real human. He's saying Jesus came by water and blood. And then he says, the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three things agree. In other words, what John is saying is this. Yes, we know because we have seen Jesus, we have touched Jesus, because he spilt his actual blood, but he's saying this, there is an additional witness, and that is the Holy Spirit. So in addition to the objective truth, That Jesus was alive, that he came in the flesh, that he died in the flesh. In addition to this objective truth that we have, we have also the subjective truth. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit, God Himself bearing witness, testifying to you, not just with evidence, not just with facts but with power and conviction. We have assurance, not just because we have these facts in front of us, but because the Holy Spirit now speaks and bears witness individually to each and every one of us. That brings us not just to acknowledgement and acceptance, but that witness brings us to our knees in repentance and in trust. How do we have assurance? Through the external evidence that we have, but also the internal conviction by the work of the Holy Spirit. For those of you who are familiar with C.S. Lewis and his conversion story, we have uh, these two things converging. C.S. Lewis, Lewis, the author of Narnia and uh, uh, one of the greatest uh, Christian influencers uh, in the 20th century. He was, um, before he became a Christian, he was an atheist scholar uh, teaching English at Oxford. And C.S. Lewis had two really, really close friends, and one of those friends was uh, Tolkien, uh, the author of Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was a Christian, Uh, his other friend was a Christian, and they had many, many discussions together, and they always talked about Christianity, and they tried to, uh, you know, convert C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, at some point in his life, he had all the evidence before him, and all of his arguments against Christianity, they were punctured. But he still wasn't a Christian yet. He had acknowledged, okay, Christianity has a case. There's something here. All of my close friends whom I love, they're Christian. There is validity behind it. But he still wasn't a Christian. Not until the Spirit actually came and bore witness in his heart in 1929. This is what C.S. Lewis, this is how he describes his conversion story. This is after he had all the evidence, after he had accepted all the truths. This is what he says as he wrestled with whether or not he was going to accept Jesus. He says this, You must picture me alone in that room at Madeline, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. You know, I've had a lot of conversations in the past with non-believers, and we talk through the arguments against Christianity, and I present the case for Christianity. We spend hours and hours talking and talking and discussing, and we present all the arguments. And in most cases, we walk away acknowledging the objective facts, that Jesus was someone in history, that his death was historical, and that his resurrection, though unprovable outside of Scripture— it's hard to argue the other way. To say that Jesus died and some fishermen came and they were able to steal his body and hide it while the Roman army was after them, that's hard to prove. To say that Jesus rose again and that 500, he appeared to over 500 people and these people are bearing witness. I think we might have to take that testimony into account. And all these conversations lead to, yeah, you know what? Christianity might be true. There might be truth to what Christianity is saying. But to go from there to accepting Jesus, that's done through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's through the work of the Spirit Himself bearing witness and testimony to you. You might have experienced this for yourself or in a friend. You see, the only way to describe the phenomena of Christianity, how is it that we can describe or explain when everyone is presenting, presented with the same facts, with the same evidence, why is it that some believe and some don't? It's not because Christians are all gullible or Christians are all uneducated. It's not because only the poor are Christians, or only the rich are Christians, or only Easterners are Christian, or only Westerners are Christian. It's not that only the educated are Christian, or the young, or the rich are Christian. No, Christianity, there is no, there's not just one demographic or one personality trait. How can you describe this phenomenon where various people from different backgrounds, cultures, and eras all come to believe in the same Jesus? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, this explains why, you know, on Easter morning, you know, the world knew that Jesus rose again. But how do you describe that moment when Jesus rose again to Pentecost, 50 days later, when 3,000 people were transformed and accepted Jesus? It's not that they had discovered new evidence but it was the work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness in the hearts of these individuals, testifying that to come to faith in Jesus means eternal life. If I were to ask you, why do you believe? Why do you believe? How would you answer? Why do you believe in Jesus? You know, if I were to answer that question, I would say, you know, humanly speaking, I don't know how, because I am by nature a skeptic. Naturally, I don't like talking about the supernatural. But somehow, when I was in high school, I started to read the Bible. I started to read through parts of it. And when I read through these words in Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. That's when the Spirit spoke to me, and bore witness. These words that says meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, that is how the Spirit bore witness to me, and I knelt and I accepted Jesus. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. So how can we have assurance? Two things. We have the external evidence. We have the objective facts that Jesus lived and died and rose again. We have eyewitness testimony. However, there's also the internal work of God, the subjective experience of each believer as God convicts each and every one of you of your sin and your need for a savior. And as he speaks to you, he shows you your need for Jesus. And He grants you life freely in and through His Son. This is how we can have assurance. Let me, as I close, just speak to our congregation at this time. Um, I think many here at our church were really good with number one. I think many here or most here are well-versed in the Bible. You come to church and you hear the messages. You attend the Bible study. You're convinced of the external facts. But let me ask you, have you ever encountered Jesus for yourself? Have you had that subjective, that individual experience of God through His Spirit? bearing witness powerfully to your heart where you get down on your knees and you say, Jesus, I believe. You see, I'm not asking, do you know of God? I'm asking, do you know God? You know, what's harder than convincing non-believers to believe? It's convincing cultural Christians that they're not really Christians. What's harder than convincing skeptics to believe is convincing those who think they are believers that they are actually not. You see, I I think, um, you know, as an example, you know, I think many of our congregation know by now that I'm a fan of uh, Beyoncé, yes. I'm a Beyhive, yes. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I've, I've spoken of Beyoncé many times, of the Queen Bee, and you know, I can follow her on Twitter, I can buy all of her songs on Apple Music, I can know all the lyrics to her song and all of her dance moves, I can go to all of her concerts, I can follow the celebrity gossip, go on TMZ, But still, even after doing all of that, I would not be able to say that I know the queen. I won't. I can say I know of her. I've studied her. I've researched her. But I can never say that I know her. I can talk about her. But the truth is, I've never talked to. And this is the point this morning that I want to hammer in. You know, Christians in the church today are good at knowing about God. Christians are good at talking about God. But there are Christians today who have never talked to God. You see... We can accept the external evidence, the objective truth. We can accept the eyewitness testimony. But unless it is the Holy Spirit bearing witness to us, convincing us that this is a salvation that we need, that we cannot earn on our own, then you do not know God. And you know, you may have encountered Jesus many, many years ago the spirit may have bore witness to you many many years ago and this morning i want to simply encourage you towards this assurance i want to encourage you now to go and enjoy and reap the fruits of this assurance that we have just three things i'll list as we find in 1 john 3 to 4 john says this if you have assurance there are three fruits You have fellowship with believers, you have fellowship with God, and your joy is complete. Friends, if the Spirit has bore witness to you, and you have encountered Christ, let us go on and enjoy fellowship with God. You know, we are not trying to earn the ear of God We already have it. So the encouragement today is go fellowship with God in prayer. We don't have to try to measure up or be good enough. We have already been declared righteous in Jesus. So go and enjoy it through fellowship with your God. We don't have to be tense with God, fearful of God, always walking on eggshells. We have been adopted into His family, and so go and fellowship with your Father. Fellowship with Jesus. And may your joy be complete. You know let me just end with this one antidote, um, this one experience that I had that I think um, uh, resonates with this point. A few years back, a close friend of mine was getting married, and so he wanted to you know, just go out uh, for his bachelor party. It was just three people. It was him, myself, and another friend. And we were talking, oh, what should we do, what should we do? And he said, you know what, let's, let's just go for a really nice steak. And I said, yeah, that's great, that's great. So we found a nice steakhouse in the city, and we took a cab there. And as we were getting out, it had dawned upon me, wait, it's my friend's birthday, or it's my friend's bachelor party, so it means that, you know, he can't pay. And then the other friend, he was in between jobs, and I realized, wait, he can't pay for this. And I started to think, oh no, I have to pay for this. (laughs) So we go into this really nice steakhouse, and we're sitting down, and you know, we're playing it easy, you know, we're playing it light, and the waiter comes and we start to order food, you know, and I start to, you know, sort of veer them away and say, you know, I heard the burgers here are really good, <laughs> you know, maybe we should do the burgers. And he's like, no, it's my bachelor party, you know, let's, let's get a nice steak, right? And so we all get steak with all the sightings and, and I'm sitting there calculating in my head, how am I going to pay for this? I was a graduate student at that time. And whenever the waiter started coming along, I just wanted to, like, shoo him, like, get away, get away, you know. He would come, would you like to see our wine list, sir? No, no, get away. Would you like to see our dessert list? No, no, no dessert. And, you know, I'm sure it must have been an amazing steak, but it was hard as a rock for me. And I started to feel indigestion, and I started thinking, how am I? And I hated it. I, I mean, I was just so out of it because I was thinking, how am I going to pay for this? But you know, I had missed something. When we were walking in, my friend had said, hey, don't worry about the bill. My dad has this all covered. And I was so busy wondering, how am I gonna pay for this? How am I gonna pay for this? That I missed those words. And at the dinner table, those two hours, I was dreading it. I was thinking, oh no, I am in trouble. I cannot afford this. You know, I missed out on amazing, amazing fellowship, amazing food, amazing time with my friend who was going to get married. I missed out on fellowship because I was so worried about how I was going to cover it. You know, the point of John, he's saying this the Spirit has bore witness to you. And now, because you have that, because God has spoken into your heart, you can have fellowship with God. And John's point is go enjoy it. Enjoy fellowship with other believers. Enjoy fellowship with your God. And may your joy be complete. Stop being so anxious, worrying, and wondering how all of this is possible, how you're going to foot the bill, wondering, do I measure up? will God ever accept me? See, the goal is not, we're not trying to earn the ear of God. We already have it. And so would you this week, would you walk with your Savior Jesus? Would you enjoy fellowship with Him through prayer? Would you walk with Him daily as the Spirit continues to bear witness to you that you are His Son, You are his daughter. Join me in prayer at this time.